0: And a very good evening to you. Welcome to Catholic View. I'm Shayla Birch. Thank you so much for joining me. Coming up in today's feature, we'll be taking a look at children's rights. But first, as usual, we begin with some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa.
1: Hi, I'm Archbishop Peter Wells, Apostolic Nuncio. Thank you for listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change.
0: And in your headlines this Friday evening, Pope Francis to pay tribute to modern-day martyrs, International dialogue on migration and Pope sends encouragement to Coptic leader. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. Pope Francis will celebrate a liturgy of the word in memory of the martyrs of the 20th and 21st centuries on Easter Saturday. The commemoration is to take place in the Rome Basilica of St. Bartholomew together with members of the community of St. Egidio who look after the basilica's shrine to the memory of modern martyrs. Vatican Radio's Linda Bodoni has more.
2: In a statement, St. Egidio remarked that the event takes on a very special significance in times marked by the suffering of so many Christians in the world and in the light of Easter. The lovely Basilica on Rome's tiny Tiberina Island is not a parish, but as per the request of St. Pope John Paul II, since 1999 it serves as a shrine to men and women who died in defence of their faith during the Nazi and Communist regimes, during Latin American dictatorships as well as more recent martyrs of terrorism. During the course of the liturgy presided over by Pope Francis, friends and relatives of some modern martyrs will give their testimonies, like Carl Schneider, son of Paul, the Reformed church pastor killed in Buchenwald concentration camp in 1939, like Rosalind, sister of Father Jacques Hamel, assassinated by an Islamic State terrorist in France last year while celebrating Holy Mass and like Francisco Hernández Guevara, friend of William Quillano, a young member of the Saint Egidio community in Salvador, who was killed in 2009 while working to keep young people away from criminal rings. As part of the liturgy, a candle will be lit for every prayer recited in memory of the many martyrs, whose relics are kept in the basilica. These include martyrs of peace and dialogue, like the Trappist monks of Notre Dame de l'Atlas in Algeria. Don Andrea Santoro, who was gunned down in Turkey, Don Pino Puglisi, who was killed by the mafia, and many, many missionaries who lost their lives in defense of their faith. Well-known names like that of San Salvador Bishop Oscar Romero will resonate, together with many less famous ones. And a special prayer will be said for Mar Gregorios Ibrahim, Paul Yazigi, and Father Paolo de L'Oglio, all of them abducted in Syria and of whom all traces have been lost.
0: Archbishop Benedetto Awuza, the apostolic nuncio and permanent observer of the Holy See to the United Nations, has given statements at two panels during the International Dialogue on Migration, IDM. The IDM is the International Organization for Migration's principal forum for migration policy dialogue. Mr Timothy Herman is the attache permanent observer to the United Nations.
3: The governance of migration cannot be relegated to one ministry or a single department in government. A comprehensive response to migration requires a whole government approach, one that integrates the perspectives of different ministries and officials, and that reflects the integral nature of the human person, as well as acknowledges the need for a common response to migration in all of its complexity. In fact, a coordinated effort is needed even beyond government, including in the larger political community, civil society, international organizations as pope francis has emphasized defending migrants inalienable rights ensuring their fundamental freedoms and respecting their dignity are duties from which no one can be exempted respecting protecting and promoting the human rights of migrants no matter their migration status is a moral imperative that must be translated into national and international juridical instruments and the implementation of just fair And far-reaching political choices that prioritize constructive processes over the immediate results of consensus into this discussion pope francis has introduced a new concept that of duty of civility this approach not only implies government efforts but also the obligation of migrants while they continue to treasure their own values from their culture of origin to respect the laws and traditions of the countries in which they are received and even embraced There is an obvious link between migration here and development. The human promotion of migrants and their families should therefore begin at their communities of origin and their governments.
0: At the same meeting, the Director General of the International Organization for Migration, IOM, Mr. William Lacey Swing, said that it's time for the international community to come together to more responsibly and humanly manage the movement of people. The agency has documented over 65,000 deaths of refugees and migrants attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea or the Sahara Desert into Europe. Speaking to Joslyn Sambira, Mr. Swing said that the 2016 Global Compact on Migration provided the best chance of achieving progress on protecting and supporting people on the move.
1: Uh, And a lot of uh, input and exchanges from member states and others here, civil society, Uh, We think that this is the best moment we've had to try to achieve an international understanding and agreement on how do you protect and support people on the move who don't qualify as refugees or stateless persons. We think that uh, although the time is short and the atmosphere is somewhat unfavorable, we have a good chance now to achieve the Global Compact on Migration and Development. And I'm encouraged by the turnout and the enthusiasm this morning by all of the participants. It's been an excellent start, and we'll come back this afternoon for further panels.
4: Do you think this global compact can help ease the suffering of refugee and migrants, especially the ones that are crossing the Mediterranean?
1: Well, that's one of the driving forces that led us to this, because we're losing too many people. We've documented 65,000 deaths since the year 2000. We had 5,000 in 2016. We're approaching 1,000 this year and we don't even know how many others died whose bodies we've not found, either in the Sahara Desert or in the Mediterranean after they get there. But this is a horrible situation. It shows that our policies are not working and therefore it's time to come together as an international community and say, how can we more responsibly and humanely manage the movement of people? And it should be possible if we can if we can uh, manage things like the free movement of capital goods and services, surely we can come up with good terms for the movement of people.
4: What do you say to critics who say that it's an invasion of certain developed countries and uh, an obliteration of their frontiers or borders?
1: Well, that is one of the issues that will engage the discussion between countries of origin and countries of destination. They will each have to look at their own positions Uh, Clearly, we have to address the root causes. I mentioned this morning we have nine uh, interconnected armed conflicts from Africa to Asia. We need to address the causes of those, and why can we not resolve those earlier? Uh, We need to look at the problem of growing poverty, uh, look at the problem of political persecution, bad governance, all those things, and at the same time encourage countries of destination to be much more liberal in their visa policy, to open up more uh, avenues of legal migration so that people can get there where the jobs and the skills are needed. There's a big demographic imbalance between Western countries and the countries in the Southern hemisphere.
0: And now taking a look at some news from Africa, Uganda's military leaders have ended a long quest to capture Joseph Kony, the self-styled leader of the Lord's Resistant Army, LRA, who is wanted by international tribunals for multiple war crimes. The LRA has plagued Central Africa for more than two decades, carrying out murderous raids and kidnappings in Uganda, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and the Central African Republic. The 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 UN estimates that Connie's troops are responsible for killing over 100,000 people and kidnapping at least 50,000 children, many of whom were pressed into service with the LRA. However, Ugandan military spokesmen say that Connie now has only about 100 followers and it's weak and ineffective. The Ugandan army, which had been searching for Connie in neighbouring countries, has called off the campaign. According to FIDI's News service reports, a Jesuit priest has apparently been kidnapped in Nigeria. Father Samuel Okwedbe was abducted along with two other people as they traveled along a road from Benin City to Onitisha. The priest's car has been recovered but police have not yet been able to ascertain what happened to him. The UN mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, has received reports of fighting between government and opposition forces around Atta and Owachi in the Nile region. A UN patrol to Kodak town on Wednesday, also in Apenal, observed that the town was deserted. UN News Jocelyn Sambira has more.
4: In eastern Equatoria, a U.N. patrol to the town of Puji met with civilians who reported that Sudan People's Liberation Army SPLA soldiers looted houses and government offices as well as a health facility during recent military operations in the area. Meanwhile, in Mareng and Jongle, the SPLA prevented U.N. peacekeepers from going on patrol and forced them to return to base after unsuccessful negotiations – UNMISS once again calls on the government to facilitate full access as obligated by the Status of Forces Agreement so it can carry out its mandate, including the protection of
0: civilians. In a message of Easter greetings to Coptic Orthodox Pope Tawadros II, Pope Francis said that Christians are called to proclaim the risen one together. The Pope's message emphasized the hope that springs from Christian faith and enables every man and every woman to look at their lives with new eyes and a new heart even in circumstances marked by sadness and difficulties. The Pope's encouragement comes at a time when Egyptian Christians have been victims of violence, with Pope Tawadus himself apparently the target of a suicide bomber. Pope Francis will meet with Pope Tawadus in Cairo later this month, when both are scheduled to appear at a peace conference hosted by Al-Hazar University. Father Russell Murray, the animated general of evangelization of the Order of Friars Minor, says Pope Francis' visit to Egypt is beneficial to all.
5: We Franciscans are very happy to hear that the Holy Father will be traveling to Egypt. His is the most powerful voice for peace and reconciliation among people in the world today, particularly all of God's children and those who look upon Abraham as their father in faith. God has called us to become a gift to the world so that all people can know of his love and of his desire for them to live together as his children, making the world into a home in which all people may be able to live together as sisters and brothers. And so we pray for Pope Francis on this trip. We pray that his work may bear great fruit. We pray that it may help to be one more activity leading to the development of a world of truer justice and peace in the name of the gospel.
0: And finally, Pope Francis has sent a message of encouragement to the Marist brothers on the bicentenary of their order. Here is Vatican Radio's Linda Bodoni.
2: Remarking on their primary mission, which is the education of young people, the Pope said, An educator's work is one of constant devotedness, demanding sacrifice, but it is a work of the heart, and that is what makes it both different and sublime. In his letter addressed to the Superior General of the Marist Brothers, a religious community of more than 3,000 working to impart an education to some 600,000 young people in Marist schools around the world, Pope Francis reflected on the Order's two centuries of existence, which he said have been transformed into a great story of devotedness to children and young people. Welcoming them from over the five continents and forming them into good citizens and in particular into good Christians. However, he said it is not enough simply to reflect on the past. It is also necessary to discern the present. Thus, the Pope invited the brothers to examine themselves in the light of the spirit of the Order's founder, Saint Marcelin Champagnat, who was an innovator in the fields of education and formation and who aimed to highlight the potential that each child has hidden within. In order, he said, to be able to go out, to sow and cultivate the ground entrusted to him, the religious educator must take care of his own interior field and be aware that the ground he is working and shaping is holy. By your devotedness and effort, faithful to the mission you received, he said, you will contribute to the work of God, who is calling you to be simple instruments in his hands. Finally, he encouraged them to be open to the future with hope and to contribute, through their example, to the creation of a constantly evolving humanity in which the weak and the marginalized are valued and
0: loved. And those were some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. Thank you once again for joining me this Friday evening. It is Catholic View coming to you on Radio Veritas, 576 AM. Coming up next is our feature and today we take a look at children's rights. People around the world were shocked to see horrific images of children who drowned in the attempt to flee conflict or were victims of the chemical bombing in Syria. Tragic events such as this reminds us of the importance to protect children from harm, whatever the cause may be. On the Feast of the Holy Innocents back in December, Pope Francis wrote a letter urging bishops to protect children. He said, Christian joy is born from a call, the same call that St. Joseph received, to embrace and protect human life, especially that of the holy innocence of our own day. Bill van Esfeld is a senior researcher for children's rights at Human Rights Watch, an NGO that independently reports on and puts pressure on ending human rights abuses in about 90 countries. He spoke with Colleen Knudsen about the different issues and struggles children face around the world, as well as what needs to be done to protect children and their rights.
5: Human Rights Watch is a non-governmental organization. We sort of independently report on and try to create pressure to end human rights abuses in about 90 countries around the world, Uh, including in the Middle East. We have a a whole division of the organization that looks at individual countries in the Middle East and we have other researchers like me who focus on different thematic aspects of rights. So, for example, women's rights or what I cover is children's rights. So I've been, of course, extremely concerned about the horrible abuses that have been going on in Syria since 2011 and also monitoring the situation for children who fled as refugees to neighboring countries since then.
6: Speaking of Syria, after the horrible chemical bombing that happened a couple of weeks ago, there were pictures and videos of children that were released and used by media outlets. Uh, What were your thoughts on seeing this, and are these children's rights being violated by their pictures being used?
5: Well, we actually try to limit our own use of images of children in pain or who are suffering, who have been killed, unless it's really critical as evidence or, you know, is, is necessary to make a point. But we, tr- we do try to, to, to limit the use of those images. But, of course, the biggest concern is that, you know, the facts occurred that, that led to these images being produced. You know, we want to keep the, our eye on the ball. Um, which is that not just chemical weapons, but all sorts of conventional weapons are being used in unlawful attacks um, that are killing children and leading to these pictures being shown around the world. At least people are, um, who see the pictures are aware of what's going on, but I don't think it's necessary to always broadcast that.
6: Why is it important to differentiate children's rights from just general human rights?
5: Well, children's rights are a part of general humans, of general human rights. So the, the focus is not really on distinguishing them. Um, but in some cases, children have, you know, many, um, particular vulnerabilities that the rights framework can capture. Um, so, you know, for example, the right to education. Um, that's something where heightened awareness of, of children's rights can help be more protective. Um, you know, the fact of the long lasting damage that can be caused to children by the traumatic experiences that they go through in war, um, mentally, psychologically, and physically. Um, these things help raise the awareness of the international community to the failures, uh, to protect, to protect children, um, in war situations like Syria, but also elsewhere around the world and in the region, in places like Yemen. So it's a heightened protection framework. But the emphasis is on you know, all people's human rights, and children have special vulnerabilities that we want to protect that way.
6: Last month, Pope Francis was in Milan where he told parents, quote, your children are always watching you, even if you don't realize it. They are observing us all the time and taking it all in. What can parents or just adults in general do to instill in children that they have rights, and how can the actions of parents affect the perceived rights of their children?
1: That's
5: an interesting question. That's outside of what I often uh, deal with. I mean, what, what most of our work has focused on are clear rights abuses. Um, and one of the things that the research on situations of conflict and emergencies really bears out, and, and in general, is that one of the most important things that one can do for children's rights is to allow children to get an education support them in their education, um, and and ensure particularly that that is a safe place to be, that there's no corporal punishment at home or in the school, and that boys, girls, and, you know, no matter what your legal status may be in a country, that you are able to go to school. Um, These are rights that are primarily the obligation of governments, and that's what we tend to focus on. Rather than individual parents, um, you know, it's government policies that are really the often the key problem in terms of children not being able to go to school or children being denied their other rights. So our focus is much more on what states, governments, and authorities should do. But of course, we would say that parents obviously have a crucial role to play. But as a human rights organization, most of our focus is on What are the states supposed to do that have signed up voluntarily to protect children's rights and help fulfill them um, rather than on what families should do?
6: In nations where child marriage is a problem, which issue do you think should be addressed first, the issue of child marriage or the issue of education?
5: Well, a lot of these rights go hand in hand and the denial of one will lead to other problems. So in the case of child marriage, it comes from a number of different places. You know, one is um, there, may, there may be a, a past practice of this uh, within a community that has to be dealt with. But then that practice can be exacerbated in an emergency situation. So, you know, refugees from Syria um, who are living in Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey In each one of those refugee-hosting countries, you've seen rates of child marriage increase. And the reason that it's increased over what it used to be like in Syria is that these families are under even worse economic circumstances. And this is what they call a negative coping mechanism. Ironically, some parents marry off their daughters as children in hopes of giving them more protection. They may not have enough money to put food on the table at home, and they hope that by marrying off the daughter, uh, they'll be giving her a new home that's more protective. Now, of course, that's a terrible irony, given the abuses that can take place in child marriage, you know, the psychological damage, um, you know, the majority of Syrian refugee girls who were married under the age of 18 in Jordan, I believe, uh, the husband is at least a decade older. So, you know, this is a, this is a really serious rights concern. Um, and those girls are, you know, many are going through abuse, but the way to solve the problem is both to educate the parents to, you know, reach out to them, let them know what the dangers are. Um, crucially to provide them with some alternative. I mean, you know, some families don't want to marry off their daughters, but they see no other possible way to even give that girl enough food to eat. Um, and to, as we all know, you know, continuing to, improve girls' access to education is just about the smartest investment uh, a country or a humanitarian agency could make for the future."
0: That was Bill van Etzfeld, a senior researcher for children's rights at Human Rights Watch. Anwar Khan is the CEO of Islamic Relief USA, and he says that in times of stress, people cling to their faith more than a child to their blanket. Therefore, faith-based organizations have a unique role to play in assisting refugees and migrants. Lucy Dean spoke to Mr. Khan and began by asking him about the ways organizations like the Islamic Relief can prevent the radicalization of vulnerable populations.
7: One, we show the mercy and the compassion of Islam. What you hear from others are fighting, fighting, fighting. And there is, in Islam, a concept of military But if you take out all the love, all the compassion, all the mercy and the forgiveness, you don't have that faith anymore. So we are an example that we believe of the real faith. Our name is Islamic Relief and we believe that we practice these Islamic values. Now when young men come, and all they see are the men with guns talking about Islam and they don't see men and women of love and compassion. They're going to model their behavior. Under the people who are talking about only violence. So we want to practice moral behavior. Second thing is, we want to work with them and understand their faith. And what we are doing is trying to address some of their concerns and showing that, look, these Christian guys aren't trying to convert you in the work that we're doing. These secular guys aren't trying to get you on some kind of agenda that you think is against you.
2: So it's bringing the message to the people. It's like getting advice from a friend. It's easier to take than getting advice from a stranger.
7: That's really important. And it's a lot of good that these international organizations are are doing. So we are showing that we are an example of how you can work with international aid agencies to make the world a better place. And we're changing the narrative because they think that the only people that like them of those that are radical, many of them have been brainwashed in their understanding. They don't understand the true Islam and with us they see us practicing the true Islam.
2: What particular strengths do religious organizations have that secular ones don't and are there also limits to the things that religious NGOs can do because of the fact that they are religious?
7: Yes and yes. Where they shine is, one, is they have a trust that other organizations may not be able to have because they're not just relief and development agencies. People trust in their faith and therefore they believe that they are working on behalf of a higher power. So they have that trust which secular organizations may be difficult to have. Second, many of these people of faith are willing to go to places where other agencies may not be willing to go because they may be killed. And they have a concept that if they die, then they go to paradise. So they may go to places where um, others don't want to go. The other thing is that often when you go to an area and you find a house of worship and they find out you're from that faith, they can become false multipliers. So you can get many people from that area to help you. Now where the limits are, you need to make sure that you're inclusive and you don't just want people from your house of worship working with you, you also want people from the other houses of worship. You also want to help people who don't believe in any faith. Your job isn't to help your faith, it's to help all of humanity. The other limits is in the same way some people really trust you cuz you're from their faith some people may really hate you the other thing is you have to be careful that you separate your relief development work from proselytizing the main concern people have about faith based organizations and we have to acknowledge that yes sometimes that happens but let's not ignore all the good that faith based organizations can do
2: what are the advantages of having a strong faith in times of trouble or what protection kind of give like the title of this event mentions home is that something that faith can bring refugees who have often lost everything
7: that's one of the biggest advantages of faith-based organizations you see i can give you food i can give you medicine but often what refugees really want is hope love and people of faith again have their advantages and their disadvantages but one of the advantages is that we can console people and give emotional counseling And Islamic Relief USA, we've been doing that here in America. We also sent some of our volunteers here to Lesbos, Greece, to help the Syrian refugees that came. And we had um, a former Iraqi refugee, a former Afghan refugee. These are women in their 40s and their 50s. And the most important thing they did with the other refugees is give them hugs. Give them hugs, give them a smile, give them hope. They lost everything. They came to this great country and they not only were able to flourish in this country but they wanted to pay it forward and go back and help other refugees. Hope, hope, hope is the most important. People cling to their faith more than children cling to their blankets when they are in times of stress. It's extremely important and sometimes it's the difference between life and death.
2: Is there anything you think is really important to note?
7: I wanted to mention the importance of different faith-based organizations working together from different faiths. This is where we really change the narrative of the extremists on both sides. The way that we combat against extremism done by or against Muslims, because we're also the victims. Most of the victims of um, Daesh that you mentioned are actually Muslims. We don't hear about that much because we, um, the Eiffel Tower lights up normally when people in Christian countries get killed, but not with the majority. So, I'd just like to re- remind everyone people of faith can be the solution when they work together. We can go to some places where our Christian and secular friends cannot go. In the same way, they can go to some places where we can't go. So, what we want to do is we want to leverage our cultural sensitivity, our understanding of the faith, and leverage that with our friends of other faith or no faith so we can work together to help everybody.
0: This has been your Friday's edition of Catholic View. Thank you so much for listening. Do have a blessed Divine Mercy Sunday. I'll be back again on Tuesday at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Pierce.
1: for